What up, everybody? It is Good Friday. Eric Hulker in another episode of the Incredible Halt podcast. This time, we are at Urban Roots in downtown Grand Rapids, uh, and we are talking to the amazing Levi Gardner, um, and I, I cannot wait to share this with you. I think it's uh, perfect for this weekend, and um, I could have talked to him for about six hours. So I hope you enjoy. This is your Good Friday Easter weekend edition of the Incredible Halt podcast. There are aspects of my personality that I can't control. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. The Incredible Halt Podcast. Now might be a really good time for you to get angry. That's my secret. I'm always angry. Always don't tell television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars. But we won't. The Incredible Halt. Besides, nobody's getting hurt. Podcast. Maybe if I can control it, I can use it. Hear the music. wrote misunderstanding of what what's happening here and and a really quick story about how I got here and why I'm talking to Levi so I heard about Levi on Rob Bell's podcast called the Robcast and then quickly reached out to you and said hey I heard you I think your story is super fascinating I want to come here and talk to you about this thing but what was interesting is you are such a busy human being everybody in this office is such busy human beings that the very first time I came here I didn't get to talk to you, right? <laughs> Which turned out to be serendipitously beautiful because I get to spend an hour with Jenny. So great. And, well, not only so great, here's the fascinating thing is, and I thought this again when I got out of my car, is this space is different than every other space in the city. And I mean that like, and I was trying to figure out how in words I could explain this on the podcast while I was driving this morning. And it, it's a lot like... Um, I don't know if you saw the movie Annihilation that was out like a month ago, no, but it's all about biodiversity and like aliens taking over, but it's a sci-fi sure. flick. But what is interesting is when you come here, it's serenely quiet. And if you don't know much about Grand Rapids, this is not a place that should be serenely quiet. Mm-hmm. But the two times I've been here, I haven't heard a peep outside. Yeah. And then when you dig a little bit deeper and Jenny starts walking me around the property, like people on Good Friday and as we head into Easter are now celebrating that spring is here and the earth is waking up, which yeah. is couldn't be further from the truth because when I was here a month ago, there was a compost pile <laughs> out back that's at 145 degrees, <laughs> totally. right? So like the earth is always doing stuff. Absolutely. And so when you look at this plot of land, the thing that struck me was number one, the peace that's happening here, which I want to talk about a little bit. And number two is I feel your whole story is about perspective. Because when you step on this ground, I didn't know what an acre looked like. We're on an acre, right? I yep, when yep. she's like, we're on an acre. I'm like, this is what an acre looks like? It's I had an, no idea, right? Yep. And then, like, she does this very fun thing, which you know her better than I do. But on the w- literally on the way out, she shows me the whole thing. We go downstairs. We look at the, the seeds and, and yep. like, what's, what's to come for you guys this summer. She goes, oh, and by the way, you know, like, this whole place is based on this idea of permaculture. You should Google that. Have a great day. <laughs> um, and so I did. And and I'm going to botch this, but you can jump in and explain it. Like the idea of permaculture is that the entire acre acts as one collective unit, right? Like, yeah. From the bugs to the soil to the air to the water to the yes, right? Yeah, D- no, absolutely. So um, I I love the film Avatar, and I think what's really compelling is that we love um, silos. When we think about medicine, we often unfortunately diagnose a symptom not a person sure when we ask people what do you do we're literally saying what's your job what's your vocation we're not saying who are you um 
uh, when you ask a college student what they're studying, they're, you're not saying you're not looking for a question or an answer like uh, I'm learning how to be a better human. You're looking for an answer like anthropology, sociology, business. So we are obsessed with our silos. The problem is there's this Native American quote, and I'll see if I can find it in a little while, that talks about how the white man looks so far away and can see things through a telescope or a microscope, but he misses the things that are right in front of him, and how the red man isn't interested in looking far away um, to, up to the heavens or you know, at the microscopic level, but rather seeing all the interactions that are happening all the time. And unfortunately, as humans, we are uh, as as Westerners, rather, we get really obsessed with these silos. Worship happens on Sunday. Work happens on Monday through Friday. Entertainment happens on nights and weekends. Um, family happens over here. Work happens over here. So we have all these disciplinary silos. But when we start to see all the amazing interactions that are happening on a social, economic, ecological level all the time, it's way more compelling and it's far more wondrous and, and far less distilled. And so permaculture is a design approach for thinking about social and ecological systems in this resilient way which by the way is what the science of ecology is based on of like everything is interacting all the time and in in ecology there's a term and i talked about this with rob called dynamic stability which is such a paradox and i love that so much because it's kind of like things are constantly evolving but stable in that so we accept the yin and yang of things moving and being stable um and unfortunately more often than not we really like our, our disciplines last story I'll, I'll tell you but when we were seeking to become a nonprofit with the IRS, um, you have to go through this whole process. It's a very laborious process. And they, we finally submitted our, our application, and they rejected it. And they said, we need to know, are you a social justice organization? Are you an environmental nonprofit? Or are you an educational nonprofit? And I said, yes. And they said, nope, you can't be. You have to pick one. Sure. To me, that's symptomatic of the, the way in which we break things down. And when we kind of reconcile them, that's where the magic starts to happen. Okay, so let's take a step back, right? Sure. Because maybe <laughs> that's like a huge— No, 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 because I want to get back here because I, I, I feel like um, there's an interesting question I want to ask you about permaculture when it relates to society, but, but I want to give people some context. So sure. how, how do you become this? Like, how did you, so if we go back to your eight years old, right? <laughs> how, it, no, because when you walk out on the acre that you guys own, for the layman who hasn't been gardening for 10 or 15 years, like yeah. I don't even, I, I was, I was thinking, I was talking to my six year old daughter last night because last year we tried to do a worm farm and failed miserably. Right. Sure. Like, so I'm thinking like, I'm going to go ca- talk to this guy who's a genius at just <laughs> understanding how everything connects. And I wanted to know how you even got to there as I'm like, I can barely handle newspaper and worms, yeah. right? Like, and turning that into dirt, how, so when you walk out here, like where, where do you, where do you start to, let permaculture happen and how and how did you even arrive here on madison avenue to do this thing yeah um and not the madison avenue in new york like yeah a, yeah, much, a good a, good clarification a much, a much different view for from, the new york <laughs> listeners that i imagine for all are three out there. for all three of you this is not what we're talking about um you know I, it, so there's so many different touchstones. Um, I remember a while ago watching a film about mentoring and thinking about the various and, and the various moments and interactions that you have in your life that are touchstones that help you turn one or two degrees on your journey. Sure. And I have a million touchstones. Uh, and each of those touch points, whether it was um, going on a hike, being introduced to um, a poet, uh, you know, studying permaculture, um, traveling, uh, adopting my youngest daughter. There's all of these various experiences that have had been really rich. The biggest thing that I will say 
is um, I became a dad when I was really young. I was only 19 when I became a dad. And everyone tells you when you're going through college, hey, you're an idealist, but it's going to go away. Eventually, you're going to hit, quote unquote, the real world. And when that happens, you're going to have to get a job and you're going to have a mortgage and you're going to become cynical and jaded for the most part. Um, not entirely, but but you're going to, you know, except probably, how, right? but probably. And it just hasn't happened for me yet. Now, I've gone through lots and lots of heartbreak and loss and death. Um, but when I was when I was 22 and I was just out of college and I got a job working in environmental activism. Did, did you go to Grand Valley? Or? I went to Grand Valley for okay. my undergrad and then I went for MSU for my grad degree. Got it. And so I got a job working at an architecture firm. And I was I was bright eyed and bushy tailed, like super excited, wet behind the ears, um, reading constantly, wouldn't stop reading. Um, and I started going. I'll, I'll never forget when I quit because I did that job for two and a half years, and then I went, nope, there's something else for me. And it was a salaried position, paid benefits, vacation. Anybody would have been like, no, dude, you're doing the work you want to do in a cool space. You're, you're taken care of. And I'll never forget. A little while ago, I went back and I read my letter of resignation, and it was the most like. I don't know, inspired. I both, I, I, I love the version of myself that wrote it. But what I said is there is a dance of humanity happening. There's something bigger. And when we try and break it down to really easily distilled accessible points about um, what's, you know, what's right and wrong and what's good and bad, we miss it. Uh, Rumi has a quote, beyond right and wrong, there's a field. I will meet you there. And so when I quit that job, I found myself going, I want to explore a path that's unknown. And every person that works at Urban Roots is exploring an unknown path. None of them have followed the, here's exactly what it's going to look like, because we've kind of followed the goodness of our own hearts and ourselves. Sure. And one of the things I love about ecology is that if you look at any, there's another Rumi quote where he says, if you walk into a forest and you see all these trees, you see some that have wide, huge canopies, some that are short, some that were struck by lightning, some that were, you know, killed too shortly before their life had gone on. And he said, you don't judge them. You simply accept them as what they are. But we don't exist that way with people. We have so many more expectations for them. And if we were allowed to just kind of live through the path um, and trust the goodness of our own path, what can emerge and unfold is really, really beautiful. So for me, this whole thing has been about constantly diving deeper and kind of pushing through the weeds to understand what's on the backside of it and never really, really getting to the point of, okay, my journey's done. I've got the job now. I've got the house. I have kids now. Like my journey's done. I've never felt that way, I guess. Well, and, and I don't know that you could evoke change if that's how you felt, right? If yeah. you, if you decided that I get my four year degree and maybe I get a master's degree and then yeah. after that I get a house in Rockford. And then when I'm done with the house in Rockford and my 401k is doing this thing, I'm going to join a softball league. And <laughs> yes. that's, that's how the, that's how life ends right and that kind of leads me back to this this idea of permaculture and i don't know that this is necessarily a right analogy so which is sure. why i'm excited to talk to you about it but you did a podcast with the iheart gr folks and you said something oh, in, yeah. in one of in part of that 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 struck me and it's this idea that um and you sort of said it before we started like oh you guys feed the poor people or fix the poor people or save the poor people and i was thinking about kids food basket when I was driving over here and thinking to myself like so we have this organization that does tremendous work that everybody seems to like to be a part of but nobody who I'm, the people at kids food basket do amazing work but the people who like donate to it and do nonprofit work to raise money for them never stop to ask this question how do we stop kids food basket from needing to exist right because they're and and I have a, a very 
real connection to it because I actually started a nonprofit after going there because I knew I couldn't do that work because I'd be incessantly mad. And when I went there, they had a tote board on a whiteboard just like you have in this office that has the number of schools. And I've told the story a thousand times, but not to you. But it has the number of schools, and, and they 50, 35, 70. And then one of them had 467. And I asked the person giving me a tour, why does Cesar Chavez Elementary have the, word, the number 467 next to it? And she said, oh, that's every student that goes there. So you're telling me that in Grand Rapids, Michigan, the second largest city in the state of Michigan, we have an elementary school where every kid would starve to death if you guys weren't here. And we're not asking a larger question about permaculture and how we create an ecosystem that would fix that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Am I? Yes? No. Oh, my word. You just opened up such a huge can of worms that I'm happy to delve into. So Will those worms help me with my worm farm? Oh, always. (laughs) Always. Um you know, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen Buddhist monk, uh, says that when he looks at the rose, he can see the compost. And when he looks at the compost, he can see the rose. Uh, at the end of the poem, The Mad Farmer uh, Liberation Front, um, Wendell Berry says, practice resurrection. Uh, and for me, the idea of things are constantly in cycles of life and death is the true experience of what it is to be alive. I used to think Buddhists believe in reincarnation, and while there are some that do, what many actually believe is that my body, which is literally made up of carbon, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, potassium, when I no longer exist, those chemicals and molecular structures will be taken up by other beings. That's just straightforward science. Like a deer dies on the ground, eventually the nitrogen that it's in its blood becomes part of the oak tree it dies next to. So that's just the way it works. Unfortunately, we think as a society that hate is the opposite of love, but it's not. It's fear. And the fear of our own self-preservation, protectionism, um, my empire, which is my private property, my 401k, my personal economy, uh, that the way in which we can help the masses is by me storing up my own goods. Um, and, And that somehow if everyone just functions out of that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll raise the bar. Unfortunately, the, the adage of live simply so that others can simply live um, really is kind of missing from our dialogue about systemic change. Um, because when I, something I tell my students all the time, because I adjunct courses, the numbers change a little bit, but right now the average white family in America is worth $175,000 a year. The average family of color is worth fifteen to 20000 it's more than tenfold disparity between those two numbers. There's no way, shape, or form that that's not related to systemic issues. And unfortunately, that makes people uncomfortable. It makes sure. me uncomfortable. Well, yeah. And it's true. Asking systemic uh, questions, however, is terrifying for lots of people because we don't always know the answers. Asking sort of how do we address this symptom you know what I mean? It's, it's much easier. Band-Aids are much easier. Um, uh, you know, diagnosing someone's got, you know, uh, their arm is, you know, wounded, so just cut off the arm or whatever is much easier than getting into the symptomatic or systemic sort of thinking. Um, unfortunately, it's in the systems level thinking where we're actually going to start to make change. And there's a Martin Luther King quote that I love where he says, and I'm paraphrasing, it's only once I can not tolerate but love the supposed gross, impure, and disgusting parts of myself that I can actually change. So I think we have to get to the place of exposing the wound that exists socially, ecologically, racially, spiritually, etc. that only once we expose that do we actually have the chance to change. And so how do we do that? Because, like, like, 
you guys seem like this is a great place to ask that question, right? As I'm looking at a whiteboard and I don't necessarily understand what's up on this whiteboard as this is a pretty heady and we'll get to it in a second. But like yeah. you guys aren't you're not like again, like what we were talking about before we start, like you're not running a garden in the ghetto. That's not what's no. happening here. No, but but I mean, that's part of it. Yes, clearly. yes. No, but I think one of the one of the things that's nice and, and I love spoke folks. They're good friends of mine um, and they just do amazing work because no matter your social, political, economic, religious, ecological relationship, bikes are not very threatening. There's few people that are threatened by bikes, um, thankfully. And yet almost everything across the board says it's good, whether it's recreational health, cutting down on carbon, creating community, um, slowing down the pace of life. It's by and large, in almost every way, bikes make things better. You know what I mean? Sure. I feel the same way, obviously, and I'm biased, but about growing food and gardening. We have people here from every different socioeconomic perspective you can imagine, every different political perspective, because what we're trying to do is both take some of these really large ideas, but then translate them into something as simple and yet as transcendent as growing food and sharing a meal together. Because if we can start there, we can actually cultivate something to build off of. If it was just ideas with no tangible touch point, it'd be really hard to access. But when I for me, think about the metaphor of the rose in the garbage um, or the rose in the compost and the compost in the rose. That's a metaphor. But when you can literally experience it and when people like yourself and I have students come by that feel compost that's 150 degrees, they're like, oh, my word. So this thing isn't dead. There's like life happening in here when we can get. And, ex- and mind you, when I was here, it was 21 degrees, right? <laughs> yeah, like yeah, it, totally. life is happening in places where you don't think it would be happening. Yes. And, and every time you say something like someone that visits says something like that, that's metaphor. Life is happening in places that you don't expect it to happen. That's metaphor, and it's literally true. So one of our goals here is how do we exist on the very tangible, literal level of amazing programs and amazing work? And Jenny, my program manager, is absolutely brilliant, and she takes things that I say or that we dream up together and translates them. But also, how do we be a place where we can imagine a different society, imagine different possibilities? Um, Because we we desperately need to not just ask those questions, but be able to continue taking steps down that path. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing I wanted to talk about was, you know, when we talk about the gardening part of what you guys do here. And I want to get your perspective on the two and a half. You've been here two and a half years, almost three. Right. Like when people come here and they and they go through a class right we'll yeah. take it down a level from, sure sure from yep world solving world problems sure so like <laughs> when they take a class what's their general reaction because the the common person and it's it's march right the common person this weekend is going to buy avocados at meyer even yep. though they're not in season and you probably yep. shouldn't eat them because they taste terrible right yeah, yeah, yeah but they don't understand that even at a, a bare minimum <sighs> level and when you come here you can start to understand things like the seasonality and and why when you're in a part of the country like this you should eat these certain things because they grow and tell you that they should be eaten right yeah. um about a month ago i went to go visit case visser over at visser farms right and we were yeah. talking about winter crops and and how people don't understand that it's it's kale and it's right like that's yep. the stuff that you should be eating you shouldn't be eating bananas and like things, sure. right when somebody comes here, what's their experience when they walk away and you start explaining the way in which the earth will essentially tell you what you should consume? Well, so that isn't a Big Mac. Right? No, like, yeah. But so here's the thing that I'll, I, I, I've looked at education a lot and um, I've taught a number of adjunct courses and I, and I guest speak in classes all the time. And one of the exercises I love to do with my students, and I mentioned this, um, is I, uh, 
I ask them, hey, who can tell me one key thing they learned from the last class they took? And students, it will take them a few minutes to like, uh, and I'm like, okay, so I'm going to translate. And I work a lot with college students. You spent somewhere between $1,500 and $2,000 on a course um, that you read hundreds of pages on. And I'm asking for one thing. And, and it's a struggle for them to find a thing. Now, then I'll ask them all to close their eyes and to say, imagine a time when you were alive, when you were fully alive, when your sensations were on fire, you could feel and taste and see everything. And then I'll ask them to share with me. Across the board, it is experiences of being with people, uh, with nature, um, with creativity and joy, uh, with wonder, um, uh, often with uh, a shared goal. And all of these things come across and I go, those are the things that shape people. Those are the things that shape us. So one of the things that we're less interested in, uh, much to our funders' chagrin, is that when uh, when people come here, I don't have to know. And don't get me wrong, we get we get outstanding comments from people that go, "This was amazing. I loved it. I, I loved every bit of it." And we break all those things down. Sure. But people go like, "I felt alive when I was here." For me, that's a bigger success than anything else. Because if we can start to touch the parts of ourself of our humanity that's actually alive, and trust in the goodness of our own selves. That's where things can grow. And so uh, I think the the word should for me is a bit of a trigger word because should comes with judgment. And for all of us that exist in this space, part of exposing that wound could be a process of judgment. Judgment on you, judgment on Monsanto, judgment on whoever. Sure. And then we end up investing our time and energy into judgment and condescension as opposed to curiosities. Um, in Buddhism, they call it a beginner's mind, which means just going, okay, what is the wound here? Um, the wound here is that there are ecological and social crises of all sorts. Okay, so how do we start to cultivate wonder and curiosity about those things? Because that's where the creativity to solve those problems is actually going to come from. It's not going to come from a heavy hand of judgment and oppression that's telling us in the back of our mind why everything we do is wrong. People that have healthy relationships with with exercise and using their body do it from a place of self-love, not from a place of judgment and shame. That so, sort of sometimes. thing. Sometimes. Yeah, that's true. But it it you're right. Sometimes they do, but overall when we exist out of places of self-love, that's where systemic change actually yeah, happens. And I, and, and I appreciate that. And I guess more to the point with not a statement of judgment on any of those no, things no, you no, mentioned. No, 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 no. No, I, I hear you. But they don't even know where to start questioning. No, right? And I, you're was, right. This is mostly a question about wonder because that's the first thing you – and and I don't even know – again, I don't even know how to frame this in sure. words. But when you when you are in this building – there's something happening, right? Yeah. Like there's this natural undulation that's happening in this place that doesn't, I, I just came from my office. It doesn't happen there, yeah. right? And I don't know, I, I don't know even being here a second time and now 30 minutes into the second time, I don't know if it's the people or the place, yeah. but there's something about here that makes you start asking questions. And that was what I was saying, right? Like when, people, when people go to the Fulton Street Farmer's Market, it's the same thing. They're seeing yes. a grocery store in a different yes. light. No, and that, and that, again, that is that beginner's mind sort of thing. You know, we have, um, so we eat a meal as a staff every day and we, we cook as a staff every day. Literally everyone here cooks and it's mostly plant-based. What's really interesting is you can tell anyone, I, I'll, I'll tell you a story. A little while ago, I had someone from a funder here. So this is someone to fund our work. Sure. And we're sitting down and talking, and this person ends up saying to me, um, 
could, could you help my family? Because we, we have a horrible relationship with food. Everybody in my family eats really poorly. We're really unhealthy. No, this is someone who has means and privilege to fund our work and is literally asking to be a recipient of our services. Now, talk about flipping the nonprofit model on its head when someone that's looking to invest in the work is also going, oh, oh, I need that work as well. And so part of the reason we eat here a lot, when I started the organization, I did lots of growing and lots of teaching. I didn't do lots of eating. And it has been a couple of my staff members that have really brought that because when people eat, that's when it starts to click for them. Mm -hmm. When it's literally inside their bodies, they're like, oh, 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 did you even know that? Oh, my word, this is now. I, could I try this? And all of these sorts of things that start to get opened up. And now they've touched the earth and they've engaged with that intimacy, but they've been exposed to it. And so that sort of curiosity starts to come Again, from wonder and curiosity. And don't get me wrong. I mean, we go to Costco and we, we don't pretend to be the beacons of perfection because we don't exist in judgment for ourselves. But we try and constantly tip the needle a little bit. So, so I think that's what we work towards with people. And so when you say that you guys do mostly plant-based, is that a conscious decision? Is that because, like, what is is, is everybody here vegan or vegetarian? No, 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 no. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, again, the silos... The average American. And I don't mean to put you in a silo. Just it's no, 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 no. You're, you're no, you're fine. I know that I'm that guy that like deconstructs every question. Which is why I wanted to come here. Okay. So. <laughs> um, the average American right now eats about 220 pounds of meat per year. So it's that's uh, a little less than a pound a day. Now, when we talk about then vegetarians, we go to zero pounds. When we go to vegans, we go to zero pounds. Um, in the 1930s, it was about half that. Literally, Americans ate about half as much meat. I was a vegetarian for a while and have been around lots of vegetarians. And unfortunately, you can actually be a vegetarian in the Western society and almost eat no plants. You can exist off bagels and Doritos. Yep. It's not hard. I have many. Oh, and cheese. Yep. Sometimes vegetarians eat crazy amounts of cheese. Yes. When we have used the language plant-based, we have had – we have vegetarians, we have vegans, and we have carnivores on staff, all of us across the board. But the reason why we say plant-based is because we know that that's what we want to lean in towards. Got it. Um, and so – and again – if the average American was eating 20, 30, 50, 80 pounds of meat, that doesn't mean no meat, but that would dramatically change all of the social and ecological problems that we have related to meat consumption. Certainly, yeah. So plant-based is a thing to lean in towards rather than a thing you don't do. One of the things I struggle so much with the word organic, you say organic to anyone. I was hoping we'd get here. And they will tell you no pesticides and no fertilizers. So I say to people, okay, um, I would never – describe someone as what they're not i would never say hey you got to meet my friend they're not from massachusetts they're not 54 and i don't know them from the y they would go right, right like yeah you just told me nothing about it um you've told me what it isn't so tell me something about it and a plant-based diet is it's a diet that is plant-based organic is kind of the same thing okay it's we can't define it by what it's not we have to define it by what it is so what should it be when we, we i'm sorry i used the word should again but no it, no, no, but no if, that's okay how, gonna, like like how sh how would one yeah yeah no, you're describe okay. describe organic i've like paralyzed your ability to say should now so, which is fine yeah um no so organic uh it, it took me, you know, a graduate degree to learn these seven words. Um, uh, feed the soil to feed the plant. That's it. Organic is about soil fertility. And soil fertility comes from understanding that 
as you said so poignantly, life happens even when you can't see it, um, life and death. And so the more we understand about trophic rebs and the rhizosphere and ecological interactions at the, 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 in the rhizosphere, which is everything below the vegetative mat of the earth, the more we go, oh my word, the soil can be alive or it can be dead. And for me, I see the soil as so... Um, analogous to our own existence that when we're investing in the existence of what it is to be human with self-love and care and healthy diets and relationships and exercise and, and all of these really healthy things, the fruit of our lives is pure and good and solid and lovely. But when we're beating the hell out of whether it's the soil or our own bodies, it's the same thing, demanding that it produce something. What we're going to get is always going to be tart and underdeveloped. So organic is not about no pesticides, and no fertilizers. We actually use, by the way, fertilizers just means fertility, which is literally the same word we use for a pregnant woman. Right. right. So like it just means does it have the ability to bring forth life? Uh, yes, I want my soil to have the ability to bring forth life. So yes, I want fertilizer that could be organic or inorganic. And again, I know I'm breaking it down, but... Organic is really about soil fertility and soil development. And if we started to understand ecology and soil more, pesticides and fertilizers become secondary to uh, understanding what we are cultivating together. And you arrive here, right? <laughs> yeah. And when I was talking to Jenny, like this place was not in good shape, <laughs> right? <No. laughs> um, and, and so what was the process by which you guys started to tackle that and build out beds and turn the earth from, cause it was very dead here when you oh, got here. Totally. Right. Yeah. Clay based, like all sorts of things yep. that are really yep. hard to, yep. But I mean, you can't tell now. Yeah. Right. Uh, so what you arrive and, and you guys go, okay, how do, where do we, how do we start yeah. building an ecology around here? You yeah. Know? No, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yes. Um, that has been a process, but you know, um, I like to think a lot about uh, we, we as humans like the words good and bad. I don't really I'm not a huge fan of those words. Um, I like I prefer the words healthy and unhealthy. Uh, the reason being that alcohol could be good or could be bad. Um, it depends. But people can tell you whether it's a healthy or unhealthy decision. And good and bad are very like, you know, yep. harsh. Um, and so with anything, we can look at an animal and go, we wouldn't say that's a, you know, good horse or bad horse, we'd say it's a healthy horse or an unhealthy horse. So when we looked at the land, we went, okay, this land has some unhealth to it. And even beyond uh, unhealth, there's some toxicity. The toxicity is that we had to pull 80 yards of concrete out of the earth because there were housing foundations here. Now, that's not a bad thing. But Did we... you know that when you arrived no. here? Okay, no, gotcha. No, no, no. Um, when we started to double dig because we, we build really deep um, beds by hand, um, we hit lots of concrete. So I was on an excavator for about five days pulling about 80 yards of concrete out of the ground um, so that soil can do what soil needs to do. So we started to pull all those things out. We've brought in about 100 yards of compost, which, again, compost is just what used to be living material, and now it's not. Now we're literally capturing food waste from the city of Grand Rapids, so people's coffee grounds and eggshells, converting that to compost, and that's literally becoming the soil fertility. So all of the plants that we have growing downstairs right now are growing in what was once the trash of other people's food scraps from Grand Rapids. So, again, that, that Thich Nhat Hanh poem is not just metaphor. It's very literal. But the process of doing that has been challenging. Um, I'm writing a, a small kind of, I don't know, ebook right now or something like that. But um, everyone that we work with always is like, well, we got to till. 
and I'm very much not a fan of yes, tillage. Yes, I knew that, yeah. Um, because at, at, in the short term, tillage makes things look better. It's, it's again, very similar to, to caffeine or anything like that. It, <laughs> it, it, it really, like, in the short – every time I see the, like, um, the five-hour energy yes. thing, I'm yep. like, that's tillage. Because it makes something appear synthetically more productive than it actually is. Tillage literally accelerates decomposition of the organic matter in the soil, making nutrients more available and also leaching them out faster, which is why tillage created the literal dust bowl. So we don't do anything through mechanization here. Only occasionally will we use tillage to destroy um, Kentucky bluegrass because it was bred to be really invasive and spread like wildfire. That's the only time we'll ever do it. But all of our beds are built by hand. And so that process has been a two-and-a-half-year process. And our soil fertility is only one-tenth of where it's going to be. What In your, in your brilliant mind, what, <laughs> you, how, how long till this place becomes uh, – where you were comfortable going, yeah, I think we've got a good because I know that it's continually yeah, changing. But yeah. where where is are we five years away from that? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So, um, in in uh, rainforests, which are considered the most biologically productive ecosystem in the world, generally there's this thing called soil organic matter (SOM), and that's just the amount of soil that used to be living, um, residual humus. Uh, in those really really healthy productive uh, ecosystems uh, soil organic matter can be eight nine ten percent which is just insane i mean that is that's why you know a a, a banana tree can grow in nine months when there's just right. a lot of humus and, yep. and it's really healthy um the worldwide average of soil organic matter i want to say is like two and a half percent now some of that is related to you know like the permafrost of northern you know russia um but also, just generally, most of our ag lands have been destroyed. Every time we till, literally stuff washes away. So we lose all of that, um, that soil organic matter. For me, when our soil organic matter is approaching the 6 7 8%, that's where we're starting to get really, really biologically productive land. And here's the big thing, translating into a very tangible outcome, less the theoretical. Um, the World Wildlife Federation uh, says that in about 2007, 2008, we surpassed the Earth's carrying capacity. So with now 7.5 billion people, we are consuming more than the Earth is producing. The, the way the authors write is that we're drawing down on nature's capital. We've already exploited all of her interest. For me, this system, the, bio, the biointensive system of growing, the no-till system of growing, I, I contacted a farmer one time in North Carolina who's been doing this system for 25 years. And I said, I don't buy it. I don't believe it. I don't think it works. And he said, I just harvested 500 pounds of onions out of a 100-square-foot bed. 500 pounds of onions. Wow. Um, it was all done by hand. It was all seeded from um, cedar boxes. There was no plastic used anywhere, and it was watered by hand. Now, when we start touching on biologically productive systems like that, it starts to give us an idea of what sort of dynamic stability is actually possible when we farm with nature instead of against her. For me, we are already so far um, uh, ahead of the journey where I thought we would be, but continuing to invest in the work we're doing in the long-termness, um, yeah, I think three to five years from now, this will be an amazing piece of land. And I mean, right now, if we were to go out there, you know, I could take a, a spading fork and sink it into the soil 18 to 24 inches. That's not something you can do in places where you don't have really healthy soil fertility yeah. other than a rainforest. Right. So, right. so I don't know, the closer we get to uh, the uh, 
we're never going to be a tropical rainforest because we're a temperate climate, but the closer we get to what the natural soil fertility would look like in the temperate climates of, you know, the, the forests here before, you know, colonialization, we'll be closer. So, so Levi, you, you obviously, you've got a million things going on, so I don't want to keep you very much longer, even though I could stay and talk to you for hours. Sure. You know, um, I know that you have a soft spot for the idea of victory gardens, right? So yeah. I, I kind of <laughs> wanted, wanted to wrap this by asking a very specific, tangible question. Yeah. What would West Michigan look like as a community if everybody started a garden? Oh, my word. Before you got here, I uh, I try and take mindful walks when I can. And so I just like try and walk lightly on the earth and imagine. Um, there's 70 million acres of corn in the U.S. and about 35 million acres of grass. Um, so I live in, uh, uh, in a small neighborhood. And this year I'm sheet mulching my front yard. What does that mean? Um, sorry, uh, it means no, I'm, no. That's good. I, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's a principle where you're 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 killing off the grass by putting down carbon and nitrogen. Um, so like literally layers of compost, cardboard, leaves, it. straw, um, so that eventually it'll build a really healthy soil fertility. It's a no-till method, but I'm doing it, and sometimes I sit out on my front porch. My family is out on our front lawn all the time, and we look down our street, and there are very few people that are, unfortunately. Yards are this thing, especially in this climate, that are passive. You mow them. That's it. They are there to be mowed. If we as a city used our collective imagination to grow a garden anywhere that we could, I mean everywhere, business parks, schools, churches, nonprofits, the the parkway strip between the sidewalk and the curb, everywhere, we would live in a different city. We would live in a city that is... uh, um, worthy of an identity that surpasses beer city or art prize city we could be a growing thriving city there's a small town in england i forget the name um but they've literally planted gardens everywhere and and it is now like it is the thing that the city orients around for me that is the vision for this city whether or not i can make it happen uh, i don't know but like we could imagine something so different in our relationships to the seasons and people and economy and health and relationship, all of those things. Um, that's what we're trying to do here. I, I, so I, I don't know. We're further now than we were a few years ago. So we're going to keep trying to do it. For sure. <laughs> Levi, this has been awesome. Uh, you know, thank you so much for the time. Um, if people want to get a hold of you, it's urbanrootsgr.org. Um, and then got, you guys have an event coming up that's talking all about this. It's, they're not victory gardens, but they're community gardens, yeah, right? Yeah, so and, we, we call them actually, um, so we're writing, a, we're writing a book right now about it called The Sharing Garden because it's a different approach to the traditional community garden. It's a shared model, um, kind of collective farming. The literature is really, both the literature and people's experience are really community gardens often don't work quite like people hope they would. There's lots of stories of struggling community gardens, and we have kind of developed a model that seems to be thriving called The Sharing Garden. So we're excited. So on April 13th at Blanford Nature Center um, from nine to five, we're doing a whole day training. Um, scholarships are available for people, um, but we we have schools, churches, nonprofits, other faith communities, um, businesses coming to learn about this model and kind of what we can cultivate together. And our tagline is um, community happens when we grow together. Uh, and, and we really believe that growing literally and metaphorically can help shape a different community. And I was telling Jenny when I was here last time, my mother actually does this in Glenview, Illinois, which is north of Chicago, okay. on a farm called Wagner Farm that's like, it's 
like a historical farm, but then yeah. they do this sharing garden where everybody kind of makes the stuff and she yeah. loves it. So yeah, it's I don't know. It is it is the future, I guess. To be honest, well, because it's an easier way. Because if if you don't know, like for me, the the couple times I've started to garden, like lettuce, I don't understand. Yeah, right. So I need somebody who knows how to do that to do that part, and I can do this other thing, and then yes. you switch, right? And and I think the the example that I've always used with people is, you know, um. Imagine ten people get together and they all have iPhones, and a friend of theirs. I can't is, imagine that. Well. Uh, just, just hypothetically, <laughs> use your like I, dig deep, um, and they go, "Hey, our our friend's getting married. We could be the photographer. We could easily be the photographer. We've all got cameras." Well, who there has studied symmetry, composition, light, isometrics, relationships, preparation, all of those things? Or you can have a professional photographer who charges two thousand dollars but has all the equipment, the experience, the knowledge. Well. One of those is transactional, paying the professional. The other one is going to not work so well, the 10 people with iPhones. But if you want something interesting to happen, hire the photographer to teach those 10 people, and you're going to have a really interesting experience. Because not only are you going to get the intelligence and the skill of that photographer, you're going to get the love, the creativity, the uh -huh. inspiration of those 10 people with iPhones. Magic is really going to happen if you do that. And so that's what the intersectionality of we have learned ways of growing and thinking in ecology, but we can't do it on our own. Co uh, collaboration is the heart of everything we do. And if we're trying to out to prove how great we are we have nothing going for us we want to work with people anywhere and everywhere we can awesome have an awesome easter man hey thanks you too thanks for the time yep absolutely, absolutely.